He is risen. Sometimes we can find those words to Easter Sunday. But what we know as Christians is that Easter is not simply a day. It's a new era. It's a new era in history. On Easter, everything becomes new. Lots of things come back to life, not just Jesus. He's just the first. So I want to spend the next few weeks talking to you about some of the people in the gospel story that need resurrection. They're waiting for a resurrection. Even though Jesus has come back and they have heard it, maybe even believe it, they themselves still need a rising. Today, I want to focus on Peter. You know that name well. About a month ago, my dad reminded me of a verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter said, To you then, who believe, he is precious. That word precious means uh, valuable, means one of a kind, it means priceless, it's irreplaceable. When you have something precious, you don't sell it because whatever somebody would give you for it is not worth its true value. When you have something precious, you lose everything else before you lose that. You hold on to it. You don't bargain with it. To you then who believe he is precious, he's valuable, irreplaceable. Nothing that you have is worth what he is worth to you. He's precious. I got so caught in the language of that verse that I forgot uh, who said it. It was Peter. It was Mr. Uh, I'll never deny him. I swear to God, I don't know the guy. That's the guy who said it. <clears throat> it's the guy who was so humiliated that he couldn't show up at the resurrection. That's the guy. The one that met Jesus on the beach afterwards, and while Jesus was cooking the fish, he couldn't look him in the eye. That's the guy. So for him to come back from that and to say, to you who believe, he is priceless. He's invaluable. Get rid of everything before you get rid of him. I want to spend time this morning talking about and to Peter. It seems strange to me, and it might just be a coincidence, that the stories of Judas and Peter occur in the same chapter in all four Gospels. Did you know that? Now, it might be a coincidence, as I say, because the chapters were added 12, 1,300 years after the Bible was written, so maybe it just worked out that way, but it struck me. They're a lot alike, you know. They were both at the table that night that Jesus made these predictions, and Jesus predicted something about both of them. 
He told Judas he would betray him. He told Peter he would deny him. Both are forms of abandonment, and so both of them hurt Jesus immensely when they did their little act. And both of them got up from the table and sooner or later went into the night. Somehow, Paul would only notice the one and not the other. For Paul said it was the night he was betrayed. He didn't say it was the night he was denied, even though they were the same night. Some people have tried to find the difference between Judas and Peter. Some have said Judas is uh, in the first degree. Peter is third degree. <laughs> Some have said Judas was an act of malice and Peter was an act of weakness. I say if you're Jesus that night, what does it matter? Both of them have abandoned you when you needed him the most, and both of them have hurt you to the bone. I think the reason Paul remembered one and not the other is because of the way the stories ended. But it didn't end the same. Both were forms of abandonment, but Judas, as you remember, came to his senses and brought the money. The 30 pieces of silver went back into the temple courts in front of the chief priest. The guy who is supposed to hear a man's confession. And he says, I've betrayed innocent blood. We like to demonize Judas, but I see a man that is broken. I see a guy that is on the brink. I don't see malice here in Matthew 27. I see a man in despair with hands trembling, looking at the chief priests whose job it is to hear confessions. And he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. And the priest with a wave of his hand says, what is that to me? Oh, I don't know. It might be your job. <laughs> he says, uh, this is your responsibility. And I want to say, no, it's not. You're a priest. It's your responsibility, not his. Judas is overwhelmed. There is no pardon. He takes the money and he throws it on the floor of the temple. Did you notice that? The money used to betray him ended up on the floor of the temple. And he went out and he hanged himself. Peter's story is a little different. The night that... Uh, Jesus predicted Judas would betray him. He also predicted Peter would deny him. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to battle for you. I'm ready to fight for you. I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus said, no. No, in fact, before the rooster crows one time, you'll deny me three times. I think sometimes we think about denial as an act of malice. 
we think of it as an act of aggression, as it's a form of disavowing ourselves from somebody. So whenever I'm uptown, for instance, or I'm a teenager at a cafeteria, or uh, um, I'm a businessman in a meeting, and, and somebody uh, mentions, hey, are you a follower of Jesus? And I say, no, no, I don't know him. That must be a form of denial. And I, I guess it is, except that stuff never happens to me. It probably don't happen to you either. You probably don't get called out that much. My goodness, some of you work in Christian universities. You better be a follower of Jesus. <laughs> but when I look at the word, what I notice is it has a wide variety of meanings. It means different kinds of failures. So one of them is a disavowal, it's a rejection, it's to say to somebody, I don't know who that person is, even though you do. It's a complete contradiction of your loyalty to one person, but that's not all it means. It also means to act or speak in ways that are inconsistent with that person. So, for instance, when Jesus tells you to deny yourself, those are his words, and it's the same word... He's not telling you to deny that you exist or that you even know yourself. He's telling you to stop acting in ways that are in your best interest and start acting in ways that are in his best interest. That's why he says, if you'll come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You must deny yourself before you follow me. You must do things that are in my best interest, not in yours. And so it starts to broaden the meaning of what it is to deny him. So let me take you back to the night. I read it differently now. The night that Peter denied him, he was at the table when Jesus made that prediction. Peter said it would never happen. <laughs> Jesus and Peter have very different views of Peter's character. After they get up from the table, they go out to a garden. Jesus starts to pray. Peter falls asleep. <laughs> it's like you've fallen asleep in one of my sermons. About that time, the guards show up. They're going to arrest him. Peter knows exactly what this means. If they succeed in carrying him away, it's game, set, and match. Over. So Peter reaches in, pulls out his sword, and whacks off one of the guard's ears. Jesus reaches down, picks up the ear, puts it back on the man's head. Then he turns to Peter and say nothing to the guards. He turns to Peter, the one defending him, and says, put away the sword. And then in my mind's eye, he just turns around and puts his hands behind his back. And they tie him up and they walk him away. And Peter is standing there in the garden, still holding his sword, wondering why Jesus isn't acting like Jesus. This is zero hour. You talk, talk, talk about a kingdom all you want. 
that now that you have a regiment in front of you, this is your finest hour. Takes the knee. Peter says, I'll fight for you. I'll die for you. And to prove it, he pulls his sword out and he's ready to get into a battle. And Jesus calls him down and Jesus takes a knee. So when Peter says, I don't know him, I mean, maybe he's telling the truth. I don't know him. I thought I knew him, but I don't know him. The one that I knew was supposed to do something right now, and he does nothing. There's nowhere in it does Peter accuse Jesus of being a charlatan. He never says, Jesus is not who he said he was. He just says, I don't know him. Because the one I knew was going to stand and fight when the kingdoms were clashing and he just turns around like he's beat and he walks away in the company of guards. I did what I was supposed to do. Jesus, aren't you supposed to do something right now? I don't know whether this is uh, Peter's lack of courage or whether it's just Peter's profound disappointment. I prayed and God did nothing. Yeah, we got the elders around. We did the whole oil thing. And she died. And I went into uh, the marketplace and I stood up and my colleagues and I, I said, thus says the Lord. I was so sure of myself that day. And he didn't say a thing. I sold my house. I went off to some mission field to try to reach people for Jesus. I was sure he would meet me there. He never showed up. Now, there's probably a nicer way to say that in church, but... In my heart, that's what happened. I don't know him. He might be everything he said he was. But if he is, then he meant something like, I don't know, because I don't know this guy. So I start to think that denial is sometimes bigger than just saying, I'm not part of his company. Sometimes it's a withholding ourselves from him. I can't give myself to that anymore. Twice burned my fault. Anybody here this morning in that situation? Yes, Sunday school got you all high about what Jesus can do. He turns around, takes a knee. When are we going to win? It's time.
So I want to talk the rest of this morning. I don't have long. I can see that um, to Peter. I think you're out there. I want to talk to those of, 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 of you that feel the profound disappointment, those of you that you were sure one moment you'd never do it, and then the next moment you did it. Peter teaches me three things. One is that I never see it coming. Oh, no, Lord. All the others fall away on account of you. I never will. I never see it coming too. Is that whenever it happens, it's a violation of a relationship. It's not the violation of a law. Let me put that a little differently to you. I think sometimes churches, religion especially, spends too much time thinking about sin. And we don't spend enough time thinking about the relationship. Jesus did not say to Peter, before the rooster crows, you will sin three times. He didn't say, before the rooster crows, You'll break the law. He said, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me. Maybe it's just me, but whenever I play Peter, the first thing I worry about is forgiveness. How do I make this right? How do I start over? How do I even the score? How do I erase the sin, the mark, the stain? That is not the question. The question is, how do I reconcile with the man I've disappointed? There is a person on the other side of religion. This is not a code. There's not a formula for repentance and forgiveness. Insert repentance, pull out. It don't work that way. It's a person, people. It's a person. There's a person on the other side of this relationship. And I have been disloyal to a man. So no amount of begging for forgiveness is going to reconcile that relationship. The reason we get forgiveness is to get the barriers out of the way so the relationship can continue. But this is a relationship. You know how many times I've heard Christians banter about which sin, what sin, how many sins is enough? Third. I always learn that when I do the Peter thing, it's never what happened. It's what happens next. This either ends like Judas or it ends like Peter. Can I talk? for a moment to some of us in the room that uh, I think 
might be on Peter's trajectory, and we don't know it. I, I, I didn't catch this at first. I was going back and reading the story of how Peter did, because I was asking the same thing. How do you go from, I will never fall away, to, in Matthew's account, calling down curses on himself, saying, I swear to God, I don't know him. How do you get there? Does it just happen? And I discovered, no, it doesn't just happen. Just telltale signs. Let me give you a couple to look out for. One of them is, I'm calling it unself-awareness. <laughs> Peter's overestimating himself in comparison with all the other disciples. What he says in Matthew is, even if everybody else falls away, I never will. He favorably compares himself to the other disciples. Peter has too much self-confidence. He believes he's special. He's unique. So he always sees his positive side, and he never sees the negative side. He doesn't realize that most of the time, our vices are simply the underbelly of our virtues. So he'll say, you remember that day when I said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living. Remember that day? He looked at me and said, yeah, and you're a rock. And on that rock, I will build my church. One of the disciples said, yeah, wasn't that the same day? He said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> yeah, but did you hear what I said to him? See, he's, he's so sure of his virtues. He loves justice. He don't realize that makes him prone to violence. He so surely wants justice, he doesn't see it's making him an angry man. He's quick-witted, First guy to do everything, but he never sees. That's what makes him fickle, thin. He doesn't see that. Not self-aware. Look, I don't want to pick on us, but it's possible some of us are not self-aware. In study after study after study, we consistently rate ourselves in the top 10 percentile. I am not making this up. When they talk to students today, they put themselves in the top 10 percentile. 90% of the students think they're in the top 10% of the brackets. Well, dude, you ain't that good at math then because a good full half of you are wrong, but they're professors in a different study 80% of the professors put themselves above average. So whatever you learned at grad school, it wasn't math because a good full, we do the same thing with leadership. 
I'm in the top 10%. We do the same thing with our personalities. We do it with our driving, for crying out loud. Most of us think we are in the top 10 to 20% of the drivers. <laughs> I've seen y'all. <laughs> and you've seen me. All I'm saying is, if we consistently rate ourselves better than average at virtually everything, we might be doing the same thing in our spirituality. We might think we are better than we actually are. And so what you might want to do is pull someone aside who knows you really well and say, where are my weaknesses? Now be careful because they'll tell you. And you shouldn't shut them down. You can't justify them. Well, that's actually... You just blew it. You might want to get alone with God someday. Really. And just ask him, what do you know about me that I don't know? Don't tell me all at once. Take a while. But tell me. I also noticed Peter followed at a distance. You might not have caught that in Luke 22. It said when the guards came into the garden to pull him away to the high priest's house. This is what it says. And they took him to the house of the high priest, comma, and Peter followed at a distance. When there's a separation between ourselves and Jesus, other things become more important. And why that is so critical is because somebody told me once that courage is not the absence of fear. It's simply knowing that something else is more important than the thing you fear. So when a person is afraid, but they act in the interests of what they know to be more important, they're acting courageously. As long as we are trailing behind Jesus and other things become more important, it's harder to show courage in that heat of the moment. Because ultimately, we act courageously for the things that are most important. Third, I noticed that when Peter followed Jesus into the high priest's uh, courtyard, he went over and he found himself a fire. It caught my attention. There's a fire in the courtyard and it is surrounded by people who are friends of the high priest. And that's when Peter goes over and he joins another company. I was asking myself, where are the disciples in all of this? Somewhere in between the garden and the courtyard, Peter seems to have left the company of disciples. And it's like he's joined another company. This is where the woman sees him and says, wait a minute. Aren't you one of him? He says, I am not. Another one says, no, wait, I'm pretty sure I saw you there. He said, I do not belong to them. I don't belong to them. Why this is important is because we become enculturated by the company we keep. 
So this morning, there are some of us, I think, on a trajectory. The relationship with Jesus is cooled. We've overestimated our allegiance. We're not as lockstep as we thought. We've started to get comfortable in other circles. And I think we ought to be vigilant. But, but can I close by telling you what happens when you fall? Pastor calls me on the phone six o'clock one night. His wife called me earlier that day, just sobbing. She said, Steve, please pray. They're accusing my husband of an affair. He did not do this. I can't believe they're attacking him. We prayed. I hung up. Six o'clock that night, the husband called me and said, it's true. Steve, there's not one woman, there's four. I just remember saying, man, what happened? Elder sits with me in a McDonald's restaurant and he says, it's true. I did touch the collegian inappropriately. The deacon looks at me and he says, it's true. There is domestic abuse going on in my home. The board member says it's true. I have been taking money from the company. I look through the glass in the jail and the high school coach says it's true. I was driving while intoxicated. Most of these people are not just professing Christians. They are members of a church. Some of them members of our church. I left the list in my office, but when I sat down to tabulate the things that we look at here in college church in a typical week, a typical week, it is addiction to pornography, it is affair, it is embezzlement, it is domestic abuse, and it is violence. And I'm not really beating up on anyone. I'm just saying a lot of this stuff comes to church and it hopes for a rising. It needs a resurrection and it can't find one. Can I talk to you? Sometimes all the coolness and the distance and the finding other company will bubble to the top and it creates a signature moment, a defining act where a person says to themselves, I can't believe that I have done this. I have one word for you, just one, just one. There is a resurrection coming. You just don't know it yet. You don't know it. But Jesus is still looking for you. One of the great stories in the Gospels is in Mark chapter 16, where Easter morning, the women go to the tomb and an angel is there and this is what the angel says to them. Go tell his disciples, comma, and Peter, comma, that I am going ahead of them into Galilee. There they will see me just like they said. Somehow, the angel says, make sure when you go that Peter hears this. 
I've come back from the dead. There is going to be a resurrection. And Mark is not the only one to catch this. Luke catches it too because he said the night that Jesus walked on the road to Emmaus, got in the house, he broke the bread. And when he did, their eyes were opened. And the disciples went and found the company of other disciples. This is what they said. He is risen indeed. And he has appeared to Peter. <laughs> And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul even caught this. He says, what I learned, I pass on to you of first importance. Jesus Christ was crucified. He was buried. And on the third day, he arose from the dead. And he appeared to Peter. <laughs> then to all of the other 12. And then to 500 more people at one time, somehow Jesus makes a point of looking for Peter after Peter is done looking for him. If you're in that category, you got to know there's a resurrection. It does not matter what you've done. Your story is that of Peter's, not Judas's. There is coming a day when you will see him. You will see him. All you must do, this is his resurrection, not yours. All you must do is wait for him. You want to leave the community because you're embarrassed. Stay in the community. Keep using the means of grace, the reading of scripture, the taking of the sacrament, the praying to God. Find people who know him well. And get alongside them and ask them to listen to you and pray for you until Christ appears again. This is why Peter, at the end of his life, I don't know where the other disciples were. But Peter said, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He gave us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you. Just reach in and take it out. Who through faith are being kept by the power of God. To you then who are precious, who believe, he is precious. I don't know where the other disciples were, but here is a man after his own resurrection comes back and says, to you who believe, mm, he is precious. I'm not saying I will never fall again, but I am saying I will never make that mistake again. Not that one. Mm -mm. He found me. Would you bow your heads? So I think there are maybe two kinds of people this morning. Those who are following at a distance, you've overestimated your loyalty, your spirituality. You thought you were safe. Maybe you're hearing the Spirit say, pay attention. 
keep in step with the Spirit. Don't grow cold or lax in your fervor. And I'm speaking to people who've blown it. You failed. You did the unthinkable. And you're embarrassed. You don't want to see people. The church feels to you like a standard. Can I tell you this morning, the church is a shield. We are there to protect you until the rising. We're there to pray for you until you see him. Stay in the body of believers, not away from it. Yours is the story of Peter.